0: Dana Julie, the big table. Uh, and I get to take us into the Word this evening, which is really exciting. This is my husband's iPad that I'm less familiar with, so let's see if I can. Yeah, there we go. Okay, here we go. Uh, so, this summer we have explored a few different things, and in a couple weeks, The week after our birthday celebration, which is on the 11th of September, if you didn't know that, put it in your calendars. Same place, same time, just way more tacos. So uh, you want to be here. Um, But after that, we're going to actually pick up on a series we started in the spring about the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. However, for the next few weeks, we are... Ooh, it's a bit much... I'm pretty loud, you don't have to have me. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Anyways, (laughs) I was going to say you don't have to have me so hot, and then I just thought that sounds weird to say from the pulpit, and then I told you that anyway, so you're welcome. Uh, But for the next few weeks, we just in praying and processing, and actually came out of a scripture in our prayer time last week, but we decided to explore a question that Jesus actually asks his disciples in three of the four Gospels. And Jesus asks them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And uh, it's perhaps the most important question he asks them. It's also the most important question he asks us. Who do you say that I am?
1: Because who we believe about
0: Jesus... Sorry, let me turn my timer on, otherwise you get stuck with me for hours. There we go. Three minutes, that's what I said it for. I'm just kidding. Uh, Because who we believe about Jesus, Tozer once said, is the most important thing about us. What I think about when I think about Jesus has infinite implications in reality, right? Uh, Every decision I make, every word I speak, the emotions I process— The things I do with my time, the jobs I take, the way I spend my money, the relationships I engage with, all come back to this elemental question, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? And so we're going to spend a few weeks in this. This evening, we're going to look predominantly in the Gospel of Matthew, because for Matthew, Jesus is the king. It's the most reoccurring theme in his account of Jesus and Matthew in its entirety is really the announcement of this king and his kingdom. He actually begins his account with quoting the prophet Zechariah when he says, see, your king comes to you. It's actually, this is a weird fact, but I know it, so I'm going to share it. Uh, Approximately 1.5 times per page in a standard Bible, Matthew is going to talk about the king or the Kingdom. And in case you're wondering, that's a lot.
1: All right, so this is
0: very important. Now, let's, let's dive in together. Remember, we're answering this question, who do you say that Jesus is? If you have your Bibles, which I encourage you to do, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 1. We'll also have it, I believe, on the board behind me. If you know your Bible uh, at all or you're looking at it, Matthew chapter 1 is... Yes, that's right. It's the genealogy. You've been waiting for this. I know you have. Uh, a whole message. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to spend the whole time on the genealogy. Um, but this is important to this narrative of Jesus the king, right? Because what is a genealogy? It is a It's meant to signify why Jesus has the kind of righteous claims that he does. It is a statement of justification. It is a statement of his origin, his ancestral vindication. And so Matthew begins here because this is essential to setting up Jesus as the long-awaited King. Now we can't spend a lot of time here. I actually found it fascinating. I never spent much time in a genealogy. Matthew is way smarter than I ever thought he was. There's like numerical stuff he's doing. He's like changing people's names in significant ways. We're not going to look at any of that. For now, we're going to look at one anomaly within our king's lineage, and that is this: there are four women mentioned in the genealogy. Jesus. Now that in and of itself, pretty uncommon if you've read the Old Testament, we don't see women in genealogies very often, right? This is a patriarchal society. They just didn't do that. So that, right off the bat, is supposed to be a little bit odd. But what's more important is not that they're there, but who they are and who they are not. You see, in the Jewish faith, there were four kind of matriarchs, uh, and I'm sure you could guess them. So Sarah, the wife of Abraham, then you have Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, and finally you have Rachel, um, why am I blinking? Leah, that's it, Rachel and Leah, who were the mothers of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, those women are not here. Who do we have, alright? Do we have it up? Okay, so verse 3, we have Tamar, alright, then we have, uh, in verse 5, we have Rahab, also in verse 5 we have Ruth, and then finally in verse 6, we have the wife of Uriah or Uriah's wife, depending on your translation. Now, who are these women? Okay, Tamar was a Canaanite, right? That matters, Canaanite woman, with a very interesting story. Canaan, I mean, Tamar finds her way into this genealogy because basically her husband dies. Her father-in-law Judah, as in the line of Judah, her father-in-law doesn't give her the younger son as was his obligation. Um, So she dresses up as a prostitute on the side of the road, seduces her father-in-law, gets pregnant, and it is those sons that we see right here in this genealogy. Okay? Interesting. Uh, Then we have Rahab, also a Canaanite. She was actually a prostitute, not a pretend one, real prostitute. In the city of Jericho, if you remember that story, she actually hides the Israelite spies and helps them escape, and then God says, I will save and redeem your family. So, that's Rahab. Then we have Ruth. Now, Ruth is a rad woman. If you read that book in the Bible, it's amazing, her story. But this is what we need to know about Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, and Moabites... Were the descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. So Moabites were looked down on by Jews and Gentiles because of their origin story. You know, it's like, oh yeah, well, your great granddad, you know what I mean? This is bad, okay? So that's where Ruth comes from. And then finally, and the way that Matthew phrases this is so interesting Uriah's wife. Who was Uriah's wife? Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the woman that King David committed adultery with, and then he had Uriah himself murdered, had him killed, and then Bathsheba bears Solomon, great, wise Solomon comes from Bathsheba. So, just to recap, we have a predominantly Gentile group of women whose stories include prostitution, adultery, incest, and murder. Now, why does this matter? You see, Matthew, yes, he is legitimizing the line of Jesus, but he is intentionally placing these stories in there because he wants his listeners to realize that this is not the story they thought they were getting. This is a very unorthodox genealogy, and it hints to a very unorthodox king. You see, there were all kinds of expectations surrounding the promised king who was to come. The ones that the prophets spoke of that would reign and redeem over Israel. And Matthew, right at the outgo, is going, you think you know, but you have no idea. This genealogy, it doesn't have all the right kind of people. This story of Israel, God made a habit of redeeming and including the wrong kind of people. And you might have forgotten that he did that, but I haven't.
1: And I'm going to remind
0: you of who God chose to include in his story. This king, this kingdom, is going to include all types of people. It's going to include the worst of the worst, the lowly, The unclean the impure the disenfranchised the forgotten so get ready this is gonna look very different so that's how Matthew begins that's how he's setting up the story remember we're answering the question who do you say that I am what else we need to know about this king well flip over a couple pages to chapter four of Matthew's gospel account All right, so up until this moment in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus hasn't done any teaching. Matthew's been telling his story, his lineage, all of those things. And we're going to get to the moment where Jesus actually begins to preach, okay? So I want you to think about it as like, you know, kind of a royal edict, right? This is the king that's getting up to speak. This is his, uh, what would you call it, coronation proclamation, or in a democratic society, it's his, what do we call that, inauguration speech, okay? That's this moment. So Matthew sets it up. I'm actually going to back up a few verses. It says, to fulfill, this is verse 14 of chapter 4. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those in the land of shadow of death, the light has dawned. Now verse 17. From that time on, jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or repent for the kingdom of heaven has come the entirety of matthew's gospel according to tim mackie from the bible project can be summed up in this first message repent what he's essentially saying and i think i have this quote is he's saying stop okay something is happening that is going to force you to make a decision it's going to force you to reevaluate everything you thought you knew about the world about yourself and about god and it's going to require radical reorientation of your priorities and your values when jesus says repent that's what he means. get ready for everything to change the greek word here metanoia literally means to change the mind are you ready, Jesus is saying, to change your mind? Eugene Peterson in the message, Ooh, I lost him. There, it, there it is. Eugene Peterson in the message translates this verse, change your life, God's kingdom is here. Mm-hmm. The king has come and his first order of business, his first royal edict is repent. Why? You see, friends, unless his people, his followers, you and I, his disciples, are willing to fully reorient our entire lives, we are going to miss what he is doing. You see, the people of Israel were not ready for this king. It's why the genealogy begins the way that it does. It is radically subverting the expectations that they had for their promised king. Who do you say that I am? I am a king like none other. And as Jesus continues to preach and expound more and more on how radically different this kingdom is, we will see message after message reinforcing this narrative. What comes next after chapter 4? It's Matthew chapter 5, that famous sermon, the Beatitudes as we know it today, where Jesus says, in my kingdom, the poor are blessed. In my kingdom, the mourning are comforted. You are blessed when you show mercy and not strength, when you are persecuted and not esteemed. Change your mind. Are you ready to change your mind? And Jesus continues. If we were to systematically work our way through Matthew over and over again from the mouth of Jesus, we would hear things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, but I say, love your enemy. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, don't eat lust. In this kingdom, you will be asked to refrain not just from murder, but from all anger, and all pride, and all self-justification, and all self-service, and all greed, and all judgment. In my kingdom, blessed are the meek and not the mighty. We were talking about this in our table community this week, but you know, when was the last time you heard someone say of someone else, like, man, their meekness is awesome? You know, we were like, what is it is meekness? I think it's a form of gentleness, but that is not something that we praise in our society, right? No. We praise power. We praise self-sufficiency. We praise fame and notoriety. Let's be real. If you have a lot of Instagram followers, we think you're impressive. You're not, but we think (laughs) you are. You know what I mean, though? Let's be real. That is how we think of things. And if it wasn't radical enough or subversive enough, Jesus, the king, says this. Not only will I ask these crazy things of you, but I will do them as a king. I will do them myself. I, king of the world, shall become poor, shall become frail, shall become human. I, king of creation itself, will mourn death, will experience loss, will experience incredible suffering in my own physical body. I, Jesus, king of the world, will be hungry, will be homeless, I will be persecuted isolated deserted I will be mocked I will be rejected and finally I will be killed and all the while I will do what I am asking of you and I will extend love and peace and grace and forgiveness you see this is not David slaying Goliath this is not Solomon and all his wealth and pomp for the rest of the nations to see this Is going to be brutal and not glorious
1: this is going to look
0: like defeat and not victory every inch of the way he would be crucified and not crowned he would be buried and not enthroned and he says to us now as he said to them what then who will you say that I am will you still call will you still call me king when I hang on a cross dying. I can guarantee you that the disciples did not feel like Jesus had fulfilled their expectations. I can guarantee you that they were disappointed that those years, that all they thought was coming, ended that way. You guys all right? You know, the moment when Jesus actually asked this question is in Matthew chapter 16, and it's Peter Who beautifully responds, You are the Messiah, Son of the Living God. But only six verses later, when Jesus describes his own death, Peter stands up and says, Never. No, absolutely not. And in that kind of iconic moment, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. But if you keep reading, why does Jesus say that? He says to Peter, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you still don't get it. You still haven't repented of your expectations. You still expect the kingdom I am building to look like you want it to look, and not how I am building it. I won't be what you expected. I am not going to give you what you wanted, but am I still your king? And friends, I think fundamentally we have to ask ourselves that question. He will not always look like we expect him to look, but is he still king? Does he still reign in your and my life? This question is is what Matthew is drawing his, his audience, his readership to when jesus doesn't show up the way that we want when his teachings contradict my will my desires is he still king i.e will i bend mine to him because here's the thing about kings and i've known quite a few in my time uh, that was a joke <laughs> there's a pause for laughter uh, I was talking to my notes and I was like, here's the thing about kings And it's that phrase that I'm like, as if you know all these kings But I've read a lot about kings And uh, here's the thing about them they, they either are or they aren't, right? It's an ultimate statement, okay? It's either Richard the Lionheart or it's Don Quixote It's either the kind of rightful ruler or it's the delusional fool It is an ultimate claim There can be... No middle. I think we have a quote for this. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Either this man, talking about Jesus, was and is the Son of God, the King of the world, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and King. But you must make your choice let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher he has not left that open to us he did not intend to you and I we must make our choice is Jesus King
1: here stands a man no army
0: no palace no wealth no respect In Matthew 27, 28, it says, They they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. And they put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. Then they spit on him and took the staff and struck him in the head again and again and again. And after they had mocked him they took off his robes and they led him away to be crucified what then who do you say that i am it's striking if you read through the gospel of matthew how many times a version of this question is asked jesus asked it of his disciples as we read there's also a hilariously beautiful moment where john the baptist who was the preparer of the way if you remember but he sends his disciples to jesus and they ask him are you the one we've been waiting for or should we expect someone else that's exactly how it's written in the text which is a polite way of saying is this it like is this what we were preparing the way for or like maybe there's maybe there's another one coming because this is not what we thought it would be then there's a moment where the high priest Caiaphas asks Jesus in the temple, and finally, right before that passage we read, where they strip him of his clothes, Pontius Pilate asks him straight to his face, are you king of the Jews? Everyone wants to know. Because fundamentally, Jesus is not what they expected. And I would argue that if you and I don't ever butt up against this in our lives, if we don't ever feel caught between our expectations of Jesus and the reality of him, then perhaps we haven't fully grasped how subversive, how countercultural, how life-altering this king really is. This is not healthy, wealthy, wise. This is not the American dream. And that's not a political statement, it's a theological one. This is not Jesus the therapist, Jesus the life coach, Jesus my bestie, Jesus who always agrees with me, Jesus who thinks my life is perfect. He was a crucified king, put to death by those he came to serve. And as I was praying and processing for this evening, I I realized, you know why this is so challenging for us today? We don't live in an authoritarian, Uh, environment we're not used to that kind We live in a democracy right and we are not used to this kind of idea we are not used to in a post-christian post-modern cultural moment where most of our Western psyche is centered around something else it's centered around a post-king kingdom Johnny Cash, in a song called The Wanderer, he wrote wrote this. He says, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Or as Tim Mackey, the Australian theologian and social commentator, he wrote today, we want the kingdom without the king. We want all the good things that Jesus said. We want love grace and forgiveness. We live in a society where we believe in the restoration of human rights, where we believe in equality. These are biblical values. We want the poor provided for. We want social justice. We want the sick taken care of. We want his kingdom but we don't want the king. Why? Because a king requires something of. And it's not just partial alignment to aspects of his doctrine that we like. A king, if we call him king, it requires complete obedience. A king means I bend my knee. A king means I submit my life to an authority that isn't my own. A king means not my will, but his be done. And therein, I think, for you and I lies the challenge. Years ago, I read a, a, a book by Tozer where he spoke about, and this is, so this is not a new idea, a notable heresy, he called it in the church. We're essentially Christians, this is the quote, we accept a savior, but we feel like we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord and King. For as long as we want to but friends the text doesn't allow it because Jesus right from the beginning says repent change your mind everything has to change our King I think is calling us as a people back to a posture of radical obedience. A radical reorientation to his authority, to his reality, to his kingdom. Where the will of the king is preeminent and the needs of the kingdom are paramount. I feel it in my bones as we've been praying and seeking God for our community, for our people. I think God wants to create a, a radical holiness in us again where we align ourselves fully and completely to the will of the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. Not just theoretically, not just ideologically, not just theologically, but practically in my life. Not my will, but yours be done. As he came to die, so I die daily. I've watched my husband these last few weeks, and he is, sleeping is more precious to him than wake time. And he, we have two little kids, and it is hard to find time to be with Jesus. And every morning, for weeks now, he has gotten up at 5.30 to be with Jesus. I die daily. I know he does not want to wake up. But friends, he wants to be with the king. I die. Daily, As he came to serve, so I serve. As he met the needs of people, so I do also. No, my Saturdays are sacred. I can't give. I can't serve. Really? Is Jesus king? As he lived a life of sexual purity, so I do also. This is a big one for us. Really? What do we know? What do we know about covenant? What do we know about God's best for us? What do we know about what he intended in his word? He did it, so I do also. As he fasted and prayed, as he prioritized the Father, as he made disciples, so I do also. It is not easy, or I shall speak for myself, I did not find it easy to submit my will to him. I do not find it easy to obey sometimes. And this this kind of obedience, it's a long kind of obedience. Eugene Peterson says, right, faith is a long obedience in the same direction. This is a lifetime kind of obedience. This is a lifetime kind of repentance. This is a constant reorientation towards the king. And it should feel costly. And it should constitute change. And if it doesn't ever feel counterintuitive, maybe you're not reading what I'm reading. Because often this feels like, really? This is what you want? I'm saving for this, and, and God, you want me to give all that money away? I'm trusting for this, but you're asking me to do that? Are you sure? When I accept him as king, I accept that his will is preeminent over my own. And this I can say from honest experience, and I am, my husband will tell you, I am a stubborn person. But when I submit my will to his, it honestly is liberating. And it is the most beautiful space I can imagine. Because you know what, my future is now no longer entirely dependent on what I can single-handedly muster. And my time is not this static resource that i have to protect at all odds because god's grace is in the doing and when i do the things that he asked me to do there is grace for them when my money is not simply what i want to save or spend but a resource for the life that he has called me to live do you know how liberating that is when i go this is not mine this is yours you give you take away And I can trust them. I loved this summer hearing the stories of people in this community, predominantly young, single people who live in one of the most expensive places in the world, giving thousands of dollars towards the initiatives that we're involved with. People who so believed that their money was a resource for the kingdom that they were like, No, this is what God is calling, and I can trust him with that. That is a liberating space. When the king is in charge, we are liberated by that reality. What about our relationships? You know, one of the interesting realities of our time is that we all want community. We all want people. But we don't necessarily want to show up. We don't necessarily want to kind of be here. Be at our table community. We don't really want to be vulnerable, but we want people there when we need them to be there. But the beautiful thing about the text is that we see in the life of Jesus the priority on relationships, on community. And I can speak from experience. This has been something, I am an introvert. I am the least... Probably the, the, I am not the social person that likes to show up to everything and be vulnerable and, and ask for prayer and all of those things. But I believe that that is what the King asks of us. I believe that His kingdom looks like committed community. And let me tell you why it's so beautiful when I obey. How many, uh, I've been at Genesis, um, three, four years now, three years now. And in the last couple months, uh, Stu and I hit really hard, that's my husband, really hard season, lots of different things, but man, brutal. And this is when I saw the kingdom of God at its best. Because years of investing, and years of showing up when I didn't want to, but there were people there when I needed them most. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. That is what he invites us into. To bend our will to his, to show up when it's costly and it's hard and we don't want to and everything inside of us is bucking against being vulnerable and being honest and showing our weaknesses and our sins and our wrestles and our struggles. But it matters because when you need it, people are there. That doesn't mean it always turns out doesn't mean he always meets our expectations and sometimes it won't make sense but the question we have to ask ourselves is in that moment do is jesus still king do i still trust his rule and reign can i still pray your kingdom come your will be done can i still sing all hail king jesus For many of us this is a challenging activity but can i say can i ask you and i to be a people to be disciples who accept the king even when he doesn't look like what we wanted him to because if we accept him we don't accept an authoritarian dictator who is selfish and power-hungry. We accept a self-sacrificing servant who gave his life for his people. We accept a king who offers grace and love and a genuinely more beautiful and profound way to live and be human. I'm going to pray for us now. And I really wrestled as I was prepping this week, just what do we, how do we respond to this? It's so personal, it's so individual, you can do all the right things and still not bend in the knee, you know what I mean? So I'm going to ask this of you, and I'm going to have the worship team come back up, but I'm going to ask you to respond however you feel like you need to. Whatever that looks like for you right now, maybe you know, I have not repented. I have not reoriented my life. Maybe you know that there is one specific area where you're like, God, you can have everything else, but don't touch that. Or maybe there is a deep longing inside of you to see more of the kingdom, to see more of the life of God, and you are crying out and praying for the kingdom of God to be here and now. Whatever your response is, I'm gonna ask you to take a moment where you're sitting. If you wanna pray with someone, you can. But let's be real about this. If there was nothing that struck you in the message, that's also totally fine. And you can just sit with Jesus and enjoy him. But can we do that? Take a moment on your own. Don't just, this is not, if these are just ideas, they're useless. But if they empower us to change, they matter. So let's take a moment. If you want to close your eyes, if you want to get on your knees, if you want to go pee, whatever you need to do. Who do you say that I am? You ask us, Jesus. King of kings. Lord of lords. Mm-hmm. Help help us. Help us really see Know you really understand that this is not this is not what we've experienced from others, but this is beautiful. This is the kind of submission that leads to an abundant life. This is the kind of obedience that is so deeply transformative. Let's take a minute and let's do business with God and with ourselves.